Amen. Remain standing and let's go to the book of Esther this morning, chapter number four. Esther, chapter four. We are uh, in the middle of our Foundation of Faith series on Sundays, and we've been studying what faith is, what it's not, and we've been looking at different characters of faith throughout Scripture. And this morning we will study the story of Esther, the story of Esther. There in Esther chapter 4, I'm just going to read from verse 14. You could say this is the theme verse for the entire book of Esther. So I'll read through it and then we'll pray and get right into the message today. It's great to have you out today. Uh, Thankful to be in the Lord's house and open his word with you. Esther 4 verse 14. The word of God says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time... Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Brother Justin Lice, would you open us in our prayer time? Amen. You may be seated uh, this morning. The story of Esther. Uh, This story is about a Jewish girl who, when the time came, used her influence to save the Jewish race from genocide. It's the story of how one woman, by God's providence, saved the Jews from destruction. And it's a story of faith, which is why we're studying it today. The author of this book is unknown. Some believe it's a guy named Mordecai. We'll talk about him in a second. Others believe it's Ezra or maybe Nehemiah. Whoever the author was, they must have known a great deal about both Jewish and Persian culture. The greatest lesson that we can learn from the book of Esther is this. God is not simply a spectator in heaven looking down on the affairs of mankind. He is actively working in every action, reaction, place, person, and thing to bring about his plan of redemption. This book reminds us of the important truth that God is in control. Can you say amen to that this morning? One preacher wrote, The Lord reigns, not Satan, not man, not God and man, not good luck, not bad luck, not random events, not chance occurrences, not the alignment of the stars, not accidents, not blind faith, not good or bad karma, only God and God alone. And the book of Esther reminds us of that great truth. Today we will study the faith of this woman whom God used to save her people. We'll see that her faith trusts, her faith obeys, and her faith believes. Number one, first today, let's get right into it. Faith trust faith trust now what does faith trust faith trusts that god is working behind the scenes faith trusts that god is always working behind the scenes and that point will carry throughout the message this book esther is very unique it shares a characteristic that's pretty astonishing with only one other book of the bible 
You say, well, it's, it's named after a woman. Yes, that is a very important characteristic of Esther. There are only two books in the Bible named after women, but that's not the characteristic I'm talking about. Only Esther and Song of Solomon have this particular characteristic. Anybody know what it is? The book? No, that's not it. All right. Uh, <laughs> good guess. Uh, <laughs> the book of Esther never mentions God. The name God or Lord is not found anywhere in the entire book. Now, we know that God doesn't do things by accident, right? I believe the Lord gave the book of Esther this characteristic on purpose because the entire book is a story about God working behind the scenes. While God may not be mentioned by name, he is very much there. Now, faith trusts that God is working behind the scenes. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Sometimes we don't understand what's happening in our life or it seems as if heaven is completely silent. But we have a God who understands what is going on in this world and he is working behind the scenes. Even if it's not visible to you or to me, faith believes that God sees the smallest detail of your life and he is actively working all things together for our good and for his glory. Now, when we were in Honduras uh, a few weeks ago, or last month, we learned of a particular phrase, a phrase that's used uh, in that Honduran culture, and it's the phrase, buen provecho. Buen provecho. Buen provecho. Let's say it together. Ready? Buen provecho. You're ready to go. Okay, to Honduras. That's all you need to know. Uh, and it's a phrase used when you make eye contact with someone who is eating a meal, you're supposed to say, buen provecho. Um, and uh, usually when I'm eating, I avoid eye contact with everyone, all right? I'm just in shame. <laughs> just, uh, and, uh, you ever go to a restaurant and then you just stuff your mouth full and then at that exact time the waitress comes by and is like, how is everything? And you're like, good, you know, <laughs> more ranch. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but that's what you say. If I'm walking past you, you're eating, and we make eye contact, I'm supposed to say, buen provecho. It's, the, it's actually rude kind of not to say that. And uh, the missionary told us about this. Now, it's usually the one who is eating is being told, buen provecho. If we're both eating, we'll say it to each other, buen provecho, and you'll win me back, okay? Um, one time at breakfast, we were, we were eating, and there was a server that came by, and I, I met eyes with him, and he hit me with it. Buen provecho. I'm supposed to say, because he's not eating, it's gracias is all I'm supposed to say, but I, I said it back to him, which I wasn't supposed to, and uh, it's sort of like you're going through a, a drive through at McDonald's, and uh, the employee says, enjoy your meal, and then you say, you too? <laughs> you ever do that? And then you're just like, just drive away as fast as you can. So I buen provechoed him, and then the boys, our teen boys, were just brutal. They were just like shaking their head in shame that I said it back. And, but it means, you're like, what does it mean, right? Well, it has no literal translation, but it's come to mean that God has provided for you. Uh, it is an acknowledgement, our missionary said, that God's providence is upon your life because he has given you this meal. God has provided, when you're saying that, when provecho, you're, you're acknowledging God has provided 
for you. That's truly what providence means. God has provided. Providence is how God works in all things for our good and for his glory. And that's what this book is about. There is a ruler in the book. His name is King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. He is featured in the book of Esther. He's referenced about 175 times. Yet God is the main character. Now from the outset, it may appear as if this Persian king is the one calling the shots and the one in control. But please do not misunderstand. Although God is not mentioned by name, he is very much in control of everything that is happening in this book. One commentator said, throughout history, there have been many pretenders to earth's throne who have sought to conquer and rule the world. The first and most powerful and notorious usurper was Satan. After his rebellion against God was crushed, he and his angelic followers were thrown out of heaven. He became the God of this world. He inspired a host of humans to try their hand at conquest. Men such as Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Alexander the Great, the emperors of Rome, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, and so much more. In the future, there will come the most powerful Satan-possessed human conqueror of all, the final Antichrist. All of these men and a host of lesser lights have one thing in common. They all failed. Only one individual has the right, the power, and the authority to rule the earth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen today? Although King Xerxes and Esther are front and center in this story, it is the providence of God, the unseen hand working behind the curtain that is the true hero. At this point in Israel's history, they have disobeyed God so much that the Lord has kicked them out of the land of Israel. He has removed them by force of a pagan nation. And they find themselves in captivity to the kingdom of Persia. Let's pick up in Esther chapter 1, verse number 2, as we walk through this story this morning. Esther 1, verse 2. It says that in those days when the king of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. The story of Esther begins when King Xerxes calls for a six-month summit. This is a war strategy meeting. He is planning to invade Greece, and so he calls a meeting with all of his military leaders in the capital of Susa. At the end of that six-month battle meeting, he has a seven-day feast. This is a week-long drunken party. On the final day of the feast, the king decides that he wants to put his wife, the queen, a woman named Vashti, on display. So he commands his wife to come and present herself to the crowd. In Esther 1, verse 11, it says, To bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Vashti makes a decision 
that would alter the history of Israel. In the next verse, verse 12, it says, But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Vashti says no. Maybe believing her dignity and integrity were at stake, she refused to come before the crowd of mostly drunken men. Now, I want you to consider this. Had she said yes, we wouldn't be reading the book of Esther. Isn't that incredible? One decision, one small answer like yes or like no, and God can take that one decision and change the history of a nation. Had she only said yes, but she says no. And the king is furious. This is public insubordination. He is publicly humiliated. The men begin to fear a women's liberation movement. That's what it says a few verses later. Well, if the queen can get away with this, then all of our wives are going to get away with this. So the king has to make a decision. And he decides to take away the crown from Vashti. He removes her as queen. Now, some speculate and say that he killed her. She was put to death. The Bible doesn't say. What we do know is this. She was queen, and now she's not. The king then announces that he is going to get a new queen. And that's where we meet Esther. In Esther 2, verse number 5, we pick up there in our story. says, Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, her father, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So we're introduced to this Jewish man, Mordecai, and this Jewish woman, Esther. About four years go by, and the king still has not selected a queen. He's been at war with Greece, and he comes home after an unsuccessful invasion. When he comes home, he is advised by his servants, Look, king, you got to get you a new queen. Here's a good idea. Select one of the most beautiful virgins in the land, and she will be your new queen. So they have somewhat of a competition. You could say it's the, the Miss Persia pageant, all right? And this orphan named Esther is one of the women chosen. Her Jewish name, Hadassah, means myrtle, like the tree. Esther is her Persian name, which means star. Her mother and father have died, so she is raised by her cousin, Mordecai, who was older than her. It appears like Mordecai is somewhat of an official in the, the king's palace. Around this time, historians estimate the Persian kingdom had around 50 million people. We could easily say there were millions of women for King Xerxes to choose from. 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that only 400 virgin women were chosen to be taken into the palace. So we go from millions down to 400, and Esther is one of those 400. They were given a year to prepare themselves for one night with the king. An entire year. Ladies, you got to admit, that's a little excessive, okay? Next time your husband says, honey, when are we leaving? Are you ready yet? Just say, Esther took a year, sweetie. I just need five more minutes, right? (laughs) After the time was up, all of the women appear before the king. In Esther 2, verse 17, we see the outcome. It says, and the king loved Esther above all the women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is like a Cinderella story. Esther is made queen. She goes from an orphan to queen of Persia. A child of an exiled, conquered people is exalted to the highest position that any woman could have in the entire world at that time. It's hard not to picture ourselves in this story. A sinner, outcast, broken, deserving of hell, and think about what God gives us because of Christ. Our position is changed. We are now heirs of God. We are children with innumerable riches in Jesus. You see, in this book, there is a power at work that is greater than King Xerxes. Folks, this is not a random coincidence here. We don't believe in coincidence. We believe in providence, all right? In Proverbs 21, verse number 1, we're reminded of this truth. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Throughout all of this, Mordecai tells Esther not to reveal that she is Jewish. Maybe he feared there would be uh, uh, an attack against her because she wasn't Persian. So she does not disclose her heritage until later in the book at a very important time. Now, I have to pause for a second. At the end of chapter 2, something seemingly random happens. But it's not random. It tells us that Esther becomes queen, and, and she's now in the palace, and it's like, wow. And then all of a sudden, it stops and tells us this random story. There were two men who plotted to assassinate the king. As they're plotting this, Mordecai overhears their plan. Mordecai runs to Esther and says, hey, these people are trying to kill your husband, the king. Esther goes to the king and tells him, the king puts to death the two men. And then the Bible says, and they wrote it down in the chronicles of the king of Persia. So they took record of it and they wrote it down. Now you might think, well, that's kind of odd that they would just randomly mention that. It's not random. It'll come back up in just a minute. Let me remind you again, faith trusts. What does faith trust? Faith trusts that God is working behind the scenes, bringing all things together for His glory and for our eternal good. Now, one day in heaven, I don't know if there will be instant replay or not, 
I, I have hope that there is. I'd love to see some of this, you know, that we read about for all these years. And, and can I see when Moses parted the Red Sea? Or can, you know, I want to see some of those things. All of those amazing miracles. But maybe greater than all of that would be if just for a moment, when we pass on the other side of eternity, if God were to grant us just a moment to step back and to look at the tapestry of his sovereign hand working in every life, every action, every reaction, every attitude, every word spoken, every one of those like a thread woven together to complete his final masterpiece. And although on this side of heaven we can't see it, maybe on the other side of glory we'll see it all put together. And then it'll all make sense. But for now... Faith trusts that God is working behind the scenes. Everyone in this room is a part of that plan, whether you realize it or not. So whatever's going on in your life, your obstacle does not derail God's providence. Faith trusts God is working behind the scenes. Number two, faith not only trusts, but faith obeys. Faith obeys. And what does faith obey? Faith obeys despite the consequence. Faith obeys despite the consequence. Every good story needs a good villain, right? In chapter 3, we meet our villain. Esther 3, verse number 1 says this. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman. There he is. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. This guy appears. His name is Haman, favored by the king. He is brought up, you could say, to second in command next to King Xerxes. So what do you do with someone who has such power? Verse 2, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. That's what you do. You bow down before someone that is of such great power. But, it says, Mordecai did not, nor did him reverence. Mordecai will not bow down. This is Esther's cousin. As a Jewish man, he may bow to honor his king, but Persians believe to pay respect for someone as a divine being. So he stands. He doesn't bow. And the result, Haman finds out about it, and he is furious. Not only because this man didn't bow, but he's also a Jewish man. So Haman plots not only to kill Mordecai, he wants to exterminate the entire nation of Israel. So he goes to the king and he pitches him an idea. Hey king, um, we got these people that are living amongst us, the Jews. There's a lot of them, king. Uh, can you imagine if they decided to turn against you, what that would do to this kingdom? We got to do something about these people. Let's take them out, not just here in Persia, but there's a bunch of them back in that land that they claim. Let's take them out from here all the way back to Israel. And then on top of that, uh, we can take all their stuff. King Xerxes, who's all about conquering, and as a power-hungry guy, says, that sounds like a great plan, Haman. 
unbeknownst to him, his wife, the queen, is Hebrew. So he makes a law. He gives Haman his signet ring, and he says, on such a day, on such a time, the Persians will eliminate and kill all of the Jews. In Esther chapter 3, verse 13, here's what it says. And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish. You're saying the same thing three times, right? To destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Dar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. In Esther 4, verse 1, we see Mordecai's response. It says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. (laughs) Way to go, Mordecai. (laughs) Faith obeys despite the consequences. His stand for the one true God has now led to the possible extermination of his people. I wonder if Mordecai could go back and rewind, would he have bowed knowing the consequences? I think he still would have stood for the Lord. The question really is, do we stand for Jesus only when we know the outcome won't be too bad? Or do we, dis- do we stand despite what may happen? Faith isn't obedience when it's convenient. Faith obeys despite the consequences. Now, was this just a matter of payback from Haman? Maybe you're like, what is up with this dude? Well, he had a long history with the Jewish people that we don't have time to get into now. But is it really all about Haman? No. This is Satan at work in Scripture. Satan is involved all throughout the Old Testament trying to obliterate the Jewish people because if he does, he will halt God's plan of redemption. You say, how? Because the Messiah is coming through Israel. So if he can destroy Israel, he can destroy the coming Messiah. The outcome looks dreadful, but God is not surprised. God has never been surprised. I don't know who first said it, but... Someone once said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God has never said, huh, hmm. He's never had a light bulb moment. (laughs) He's never learned anything, ever. He's never made a mistake. He's never said, oops. Or uh, we say, oh, don't we say that? All right, (laughs) that's our own Ohio word, O-P-E. Some of you said it a bunch, walking in here. You're passing by, oh, 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 as you're getting coffee, and uh, it's its own thing, isn't it? <laughs> God has never said, oh. He's never been surprised. Uh, Steve Lawson said, some Christians live in such fear, they act as if they believe in the sovereignty of Satan rather than the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we live in this constant mindset of well if only 
if only this would have happened, then this would have been different, then this would have, if only I wouldn't have done this, if only this, you know, I would have gotten this job, or if only this. Erwin Lutzer said, let me encourage you, take all of those if-onlys, draw a circle around them, and then label them the providence of God. The Christian believes that God is greater than our if-onlys. His providential hand encompasses the whole of our lives, not just the good days, but the bad days too. We have the word accident in our vocabulary. God does not. God has never once had an accident. The Jews have nothing. They have no way to defend themselves, no one really to speak on their behalf. This is an impossible situation. We understand with God all things are possible. Psalm 121 verse 4 tells us this. Don't miss this. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Do you think God knew about what Haman was plotting? Do you think he knew about the desperate situation that the Israelites were in? Of course he did. The God who keeps Israel does not sleep or slumber. Word of Haman's plan doesn't take long to get back to Esther. Mordecai sends a cry of help to the new queen to appeal to the king on behalf of her people. You say, well, that's simple, isn't it? I mean, he loves her, so why doesn't he just, you know, Esther, hey, sweetie, you know, surprise, I'm Jewish, and uh, could you not do that whole uh, extermination thing? And Simple, huh? Not so much. Uh not everyone has the same culture as us, right? In Esther 4.11, we see a big problem. It says this, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. For anyone to approach the king of Persia uninvited, even the queen meant death on the spot. Unless the king would extend his golden scepter. Now, not only would Esther be breaking royal protocol, but she would be risking her life as well. And by the way, this wouldn't be the first time one of the king's queens kind of went against what he said, right? Remember Vashti? <laughs> He's probably sensitive to this stuff. Mordecai responds to Esther. This is, in a sense, one of the climaxes of the book. Esther 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Mordecai says, And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Mordecai says, Esther, do you think because it, you're in that palace that you'll be spared? If you don't speak up, God will bring deliverance from another place. That's faith by Mordecai. Whether with you or without you, Esther, God will deliver his people. One day, 
we may get to heaven and see all that God would have used us for if we had been obedient. But he used someone else instead. He says, who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe Esther's entire existence was for this one moment. Here's Esther's response. We see the faith of this woman. Esther 4, verse 16. She says, go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. Notice what she says. And if I perish, I perish. That's faith. Faith obeys despite the consequence. Even if it costs her life, Esther will do what she can to protect her people. She says fast for three days. In chapter 5, as we move through this story, she appears before the king. Esther 5, verse 2. And it was so, here it is, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, what happens? She obtained favor in his sight. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. He not only extends the scepter, but the Bible goes on to say, Xerxes says, I will give you up to half of the kingdom. What does Esther ask for? A banquet. A banquet with her, the king, and Haman. Now, while at the banquet, the king says, tell me, what do you want? What is it? What's so important? And then Esther asks for another banquet. What? It's just like, all right, Esther, out with it. Just ask him already, you know, come on. She asked for another banquet. It doesn't even really make sense. When you read through the story, it's like, she had him there. Like, you might as well just ask, right? Why doesn't she ask? What's another day going to do? Well, God can do a lot with a day. Can you imagine how Haman felt all this time? King Xerxes has granted him the extermination of his enemies. He has asked him to come to not one, but now two private banquets with him and the queen. So he walks out of that first banquet, and he is on cloud nine. Can you imagine how puffed up he felt? Esther 5.9 tells us, Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. Man, he is excited. Who's got it better than Haman? But, <laughs> somebody's about to rain on his parade. But when Haman saw Mordecai, there he is again, in the king's gate, that he stood not up. See, the first time he wouldn't bow down. Now Haman's, he's sitting down and he won't stand up. When, or Mordecai, rather. <laughs> when Haman comes by, he just remains seated. Everybody else is standing. Hey, it's Haman. Mordecai's just sitting there. Nor move for him. It says that Haman was full of indignation against Mordecai. All the joy <laughs> that Haman had is sucked away as soon as he sees this Mordecai again. And so what does he do? Like any good man, he runs home 
and he whines to his wife about it. <laughs> he goes and cries to his wife. <laughs> Honey. <laughs> and he bemoans and he says, oh, I, I have nothing at all as long as Mordecai's alive. He vents to his wife. Esther 5 verse 13. He's got everything, yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I can't stand this guy. So his wife says, well, why don't you do something about it? Put him to death. Not only kill him, humiliate him and put him to death in front of everyone. Haman loves that idea. So he builds gallows to hang Mordecai on 75 feet tall. Both Esther and Mordecai stood for the Lord. Faith obeys despite the consequences. Lastly, number three, faith believes. Let's finish our story. Faith believes. What does faith believe? Faith believes God will win in the end. I don't know who said it first, but I heard a preacher say, I've read the back of the book, and we win. We win, Christians. Faith believes that God will win in the end. That night, the king can't sleep. You ever have one of those nights? Esther 6, verse 1, it says, On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. King can't sleep. He sends one of his servants, and he says, Hey, go get the, the chronicles, the, the chronicles, the record. The Persians would keep a detailed record of everything that the king did, his important events. And so the servants come back, and they start reading a scroll of the chronicles of the king of Persia, and they read by chance the story of when Mordecai saved the king against the assassins. Remember that? That's what he reads. And so he says to his servants, and what did I do for Mordecai because of his good deed? Servants check the record. Nothing. You didn't do anything for Mordecai. I mean, you can imagine the king was like, wait, I didn't, I didn't reward him at all. He saved my life. We don't have anything. It doesn't look like you did anything for Mordecai. So the king's like, I got to do something about this. Now think about the providence of God in this story. If Esther didn't ask for a second banquet, if the king just fell asleep, if the king didn't call for the chronicles to be read, maybe he thought they're so boring, they're going to put me to sleep. I, I don't know why he calls for them. If the servants didn't bring exactly the chronicles where Mordecai saves the king, Mordecai would have been hung before the second banquet. The next day, the king calls Haman in, and he asks him a question. Hey, Haman, I got a guy in the kingdom that I really want to take care of. I really want to honor this guy. Um, what would you do if you were me and you were going to honor someone that the king favored? Now, Haman, so full of himself, thinks the king is talking about him so he's like i don't know king uh maybe what i would do is put him on your horse 
Give him the best clothes, put your ring upon his hand, and then send one of your servants to parade him around the city, saying, this is the man whom the king favors. King Xerxes says, that's a great idea, Haman. And then he says this, down in verse 10 of Esther 6. Esther 6, verse 10, jumping ahead a little bit. Then the king said to Haman, make haste and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Haman goes from celebrating to mourning, and now Haman has to walk Mordecai around the city and say, this is the man whom the king delights in and whom the king favors. This is the man. Doesn't God have a sense of humor just a little bit, all right? Remember, Mordecai was the one mourning, and now Haman is the one mourning. How can Haman kill him now? He's going to hang that guy, the one that he has just paraded around the city and said, this is the one whom the king favors. Fast forward to the next banquet that night. It finally happens. Esther reveals to the king that she is a Jew and that Haman wishes to kill her, to kill Mordecai, and to kill her entire people. The king is so shocked, the Bible says he just leaves the room furious. When he returns, he finds Haman has thrown himself at Esther. He did this to plead for his life. But when the king walks back in, all he sees is another guy wrapped around his wife. And so the king, King Xerxes, has something else in mind. He takes Haman and he hangs him on the very gallows he prepared for Mordecai. Faith believes that God will win in the end. I don't know what it is, but sometimes, even as Christians, we live as if God has lost, as if Jesus is still in the grave, and we have no hope, folks. He's not in the grave anymore, amen? We serve a living, risen king, and he has the victory, and we are in him. Therefore, if we're on his side, he wins in the end. That means we win, amen? But sometimes we walk around as if we're the ones who have lost, as if Satan is on the throne. Faith believes that even if it appears like we've lost here on earth, we know that in the end, God always gets the last laugh, and he wins. Now, there's a lingering issue. Haman's dead. All seems well, but there's still a problem because a law has been given. And according to... To the law of the Medes and Persians, once a decree in Persia was set, it could never be undone. So this law has been established on this day at this time, all of the Jewish people will be exterminated, and there is nothing that the king can do to take away that law. So what happens? A new law is given. Another law that allowed for the Jews to fight back with some help and they do in esther 9 now verse number 5 it says this thus the jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them 
It says in verse 6, And in Shushan, the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. I want to read verses 7 through 9, and then I'll explain why I'm reading these verses. And Parshadatha, and Dalphon, and Espatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Eridai, and Vajasa, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they, but on the spoil laid they not their hand. Now, why did I read those names? You're probably thinking, did he even pronounce those right? <laughs> no, I didn't, all right? But you just have to read them fast enough that no one catches it, okay? That's how it works. That's a preacher's secret. I just let you in on The Jews destroy all of their enemies. Haman is put to death. And then it lists for us the ten sons of Haman. Now, you've probably, some of you, read the book of Esther before. Maybe you didn't think twice about these ten sons of Haman. Um, without looking down, even though I just read them, you probably couldn't repeat one of the sons of Haman back to me, right? And I couldn't repeat them to you either. They're kind of almost meaningless to us in the story. Let me tell you this. They weren't meaningless to the Jews. A few years back, I went to a preacher's conference. There was a ministry there called the Hebrew Scroll Project. This ministry collects different scrolls of the Hebrew Scripture, and they travel around with them. They teach about them and how, how God's Word has been recorded for us today. One of the scrolls that caught my attention more than the others was the scroll of Esther that they had. And they had the scroll opened uh, to Esther 9, which I personally probably wouldn't do because Esther 4.14 is like the theme verse for such a time as this. That's where I, It's like the John 3.16 of Esther, right? That's where I would have opened it so I could point to it and say, and that's where it says for such a time as this. But they had it open to Esther 9. And it was unique from all the other scrolls because there was larger writing on Esther 9 than anything else. There's a picture, Jacob, would you put it up? This is not the scroll that, that I saw, um, but another scroll of the book of Esther, right in the middle. You might think, what are those big words? I'll tell you what they are. They're the names of Haman's sons. Whenever the scroll of Esther was recorded or copied, when they got to chapter 9, this is what they did. Why? So that everyone who read this scroll would be reminded that God always wins in the end. And these names are recorded throughout history to remind us that God is not to be trifled with. And this is what happens to those who stand against God and his people and his word. They are a memorial to the readers of this scroll that God is in control. <laughs> and this is what happens to his enemies. In Psalm 9, 9 verse 16, it says this. Think about it. His sons die. Haman is hanged on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. Now, listen to this verse. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked 
is snared in the work of his own hands. You know, uh, let me just pause for a second and then I'll close. This past week I saw there were two different videos that were sent to me uh, about other churches. One was here in Ohio, the other one, the first one was uh, a pastor by the name of Michael Todd, pastor of Transformation Church. Uh, I'm not recommending you follow this man. Uh, he's, uh, he's blasphemous. I don't know how long ago this was, but he was on stage preaching, and he used an illustration. He had like a set that he put on the stage, and it was supposed to depict the church. And then he, he was going and taking food and, and kind of like throwing it and making a mess. He took ketchup and squirted it all over the walls, and he's like throwing cake and I don't even know exactly what he was using the illustration for. But then he took a bottle of syrup and started pouring it. And then he came close to the pulpit and they had a tray of communion bread. And then he poured the syrup all over that. And then he poured it all over the pulpit. And then he squirted it on the Bible. And then went and got a can of whipped cream and, and uh, started squirting that on, on the Bible. And, and you say, well, what point was he trying to make? Does it matter? It doesn't. Then someone sent another video from a church here in Ohio, I believe in Cincinnati, a mega church. By the way, that Michael Todd Transformation Church, he's like, his status is just going off the charts. He is followed by millions of people. This other church, last Sunday, they had a Super Bowl-themed service. Now, look, I, I don't care, whatever. I mean, <laughs> you want to wear a jersey, preaching, whatever. You do whatever you want to do. But they came out, and supposedly a pastor and another pastor were kind of facing off, and they were the two different teams, and they announced them, and then there was a coin flip. And then one of the, the pastors uh, came over to the side, and they took a Bible— or what was depicted as a Bible. It said Bible on the front. And then she proceeded, she uh, proceeded to kick it, like a kickoff, it's fun, kickoff, uh, clear off the stage, and then kind of like jumped up in the air. And I think there is, there is nothing sacred in our culture anymore. When even those standing at the very pulpit pour food all over the, the word of God, kick it off of the stage. Can I say this? God is not to be trifled with. His word, his holiness, his people, his name is not something you mess around with. You say, well, well I mean, what? it's just the name. It's not just the name. It's the name above every name. At that name, all those, every knee in heaven, on earth, and below will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Haman forgot this point, that God is not to be messed with. His ten sons, recorded for all time, are there for us as this reminder that God is in control. Not Xerxes, not our president, and no other man on this earth. Not God plus anyone, but God and God alone. And the people of Israel celebrated that day, and they established a feast called the Feast of Purim next month. Jewish people across the world still celebrate that feast today 
to honor this moment in history where God protected his people, where the Lord kept his word. And while it may seem like things are out of control, A.W. Tozer said, behind the scenes, there is a God who has not surrendered his authority. Where is God in the book of Esther? (laughs) By name, nowhere. The real hero is never mentioned, but his hand of providence is manifested in every single detail. His providence is at work in filtering down millions of women to one, a Jew, to be queen. His providence is evident in Mordecai when he just so happened to overhear a plot to kill the king. His providence is there in the night when the king couldn't sleep and decided to read the royal record, and out of all that could have been read, it happened to be about Mordecai. It's really an amazing strategy by the author of this book, isn't it? To exclude the name of God. It motivates us to think deeply about how life's circumstances are ordered to a divine purpose. Life has far too many coincidences just to be random. And there are no major miracles in the book of Esther because the entire book is a miracle. People, places, times, dates, what does all of it mean for us? It means that there is a divine architect who watches over and orders every event in our life. He takes people, places, things, actions, reactions, words, attitudes, thoughts, deeds, and all the while giving us free will and brings it all together for our good and for his glory. We know the one who holds the king's heart. And the one who holds the king's heart holds the world in his hands. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? As you stand, if you would bow for just a moment, Maybe the Lord has uh, spoken to you through his word. Let me just say this. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in providence. I don't believe you are here by accident. I believe you are here by divine appointment. So if you are here and you have never put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, friend, it's not random that you would wander into this church on this Sunday and hear this message. If you've never been saved, can I invite you, after I pray, we're going to begin to sing a song. While we are singing that song, if you have never put your trust in Jesus for salvation, and if you wonder, well, I'm not sure whether or not I've done that, chances are you have but you can today. So when we start singing that song, I'm going to step off the platform, I'm going to step down in the front row, and I'm going to invite you to come. If you need to be saved, you step out of that aisle, you walk down to this stage, and allow me to take you to the side and share with you how you can be saved. Christian, maybe you've forgotten this great truth. You think that heaven is silent, that the Lord isn't seeing what's going on, Let me remind you today, faith, trust, that God is always working behind the scenes, even when it's not visible to us. 
Faith obeys despite the consequences that may come. Faith believes that in the end, even if it seems like we're losing now, that God will win. Maybe you want to come and recommit your faith to the Lord and to his plan in your life today. Father, we love you and we praise you for your goodness in orchestrating our lives, allowing us the free will, God, to choose you by your grace, calling us to salvation. I pray for the one here who may not be saved. Lord, let them come today and be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.